Let's pray again before I preach this morning so God can center us on his word. Father, we are so grateful for your word and the opportunity to study it now and to hear from you. We are thankful for the revelation of your character so that we might be changed, know what you require of us, and know what you are like. Teach us this morning. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. In many ways, it's fitting that uh, we prayed this morning for other churches in the community, and we have the opportunity to take the cup and the bread, the communion this morning, because we are going to talk about unity this morning. Uh, in a special way, the passage of Scripture we'll be studying in Philippians chapter 3 draws our attention back to one of the key themes of Philippians, and that is unity. So turn in your Scriptures, uh, or again, click or point or uh, scroll or whatever, however you need to get there. Philippians 3, verse 17. We're going to be studying 3.17 through the beginning of chapter 4, so verse 1. And Paul addresses in this section this morning uh, some critical components that ensure godly unity and Christian identity. Specifically, Scripture tells us here that only Christ unites us to stand firm together to the end. And that's the assertion this morning. Only Christ unites us to stand firm together to the end. And the sermon title is a shortened version of that, Standing Firm Together. And again, the text, Philippians 3, 17 through 4, 1. So follow along with me as I read this morning. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Today we're going to see three ways standing firm together in Christ changes our walk, both individually and corporately, communally, in the pursuit of God's glory. The first way is found in verse 17, and it's this. Standing firm together in Christ fosters spiritual maturity. Standing firm together in Christ fosters spiritual maturity. We see this in verse 17 when Paul begins the passage in, with this phrase, join together. This, this wording uh, raises several questions, at least initially in the mind. Uh, who is doing the joining? Who is Paul saying join together? And, and who are these people supposed, supposed to join together with? Well, those doing the joining are Paul, are Paul and the Philippians. The wording here, when literally rendered, becomes, uh, is become joint imitators with me. So uh, it, it takes two to tango, so to speak, and Paul is pointing out that there are, there's a, a mutual commitment towards spiritual maturity, a joining together for the sake of the gospel. And verse 17 also says, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Uh, the us there includes Timothy and Epaphroditus, likely people that this church, they knew, they were aware of. 
uh, examples, spiritual models from chapter two. Uh, also remember that these men uh, lived together in the, the joint pursuit of Christ. So Paul is pointing to this kind of corporate example, these exemplars of people living uh, working towards spiritual maturity, focusing on Christ alone. Uh, indeed, also in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says this simple phrase, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And very practically, since Paul can't be everywhere at once, uh, he challenges his readers to, to look around, to pay attention to those people already around them that are currently pursuing uh, Christ alone and joined together with them. So there is a standing firm together that together we pursue spiritual maturity. And scripture is teaching us here that there is not only a template for spiritual maturity, but that template can be pursued and even uh, cultivated in each one of our lives. It isn't hidden. It isn't secretive. Uh, the apostle is calling to the Philippians and God is calling to us here to follow after those who, who passionately pursue Christ, join together with them for the sake of spiritual maturity. Uh, it's the cloud of witnesses, as Hebrews describes it, so to speak. Uh, this collective group of believers throughout history who have passionately pursued Christ and seek to imitate them. Uh, while Paul uses a concept here, imitation, that maybe is a little foreign to us or, or even awkward at first, uh, in light of the previous discussions, of Philippians chapter three, it's not odd that he would talk about this because uh, there's nothing more fitting, especially on the back of verses 15 and 16, where he says, only live up to what you've already attained. Be spiritually mature for Paul to continue this line of thought. And uh, in common language, we might know this imitation as discipleship. Simply, simply put, it's discipleship. Uh, and it's fundamentally imitation, following a person or an ideal, uh, pursuing Christ alone. And this uh, standing firm together that this passage is referencing uh, necessitates that each one of us seek to live lives worthy of the gospel and together we can do this. Standing firm together necessitates a common bond, the gospel, uh, common ideals, God's character, and a common pursuit, the glory of God. Coming to the full knowledge of Christ and the pursuit of God's glory draws even the most diverse community together toward a common pursuit of spiritual life, spiritual vitality found in Christ alone. Even more, the Great Commission uh, calls each one of us to go and make disciples. So there's this discipleship motif throughout scripture. Our salvation assumes spiritual maturation. And there's no self-promoting ego here in Paul, and neither should there be in our community as we seek to stand firm together and grow in spiritual maturity. Paul begins this section with a clear call to be unified with a particular direction and focus. So it begs the question, who are you following? Who do you take after, so to speak, to use a kind of a parenting term? They often say that so-and-so's child takes after them in this way or in that way. Exemplary Christians, mature Christians, draw the community upwards together through the power of the Spirit. Paul also does something interesting when he describes this moral training, this moral education. He doesn't describe it in terms of passing on information or just, okay, learn this list of truths and learn these ideas and you'll be okay kind of a thing. Uh, he uses this imitation, this, this following after motif 
Uh, it's an observation. It's not a do as I say, not as I do. That's not present here. In fact, that undermines spiritual vitality and spiritual maturity. What he's saying is, you need to follow those who follow Christ because by definition, you will be following Christ. That's the essence of spiritual maturity. You, you deflect attention away from yourself and to Christ. So there's this attitude that becomes a, a part of our community as we move forward and as we join together. Uh, and, and I think of kind of a funny example. I'm fascinated by how my son picks up on little strange things that I do. And since I used a food analogy a few weeks ago and it was quite successful, uh, I'll use another one. So I have this really bad habit of swishing drinks or strangely enough, jello uh, in my mouth. And that's uh, not to be crude, I'm sorry. Uh, but for some strange reason, my son does the same thing. Uh, and it's sad, sad to say that. Also, uh, you know, he has never seen Star Wars, not, not once. But simply because he knows I like Star Wars, he'll say he loves it. So there's this, so we all can kind of draw these images from parenting, from relationships, from child, from children where so-and-so follows after their parent. And, and that's the idea here, these, these habits, these, this, this way of life that we pick up on as we pursue after those who are spiritually mature. And what does it do? It draws us together. Do you exercise the same desire in even the little areas to pursue after Christ? To exemplify him in every small area of your life? And then it also raises the question of who is following you? Do you know who is following you? Who is imitating you? One of the common, uh, the core values of our culture today is this assumption that we can't make statements about the way another person lives, either uh, mostly negatively, we can't judge another person. Uh, now we might say, okay, well, we understand that's wrong, but Christians have their own unique way of doing it. We abuse the notion of judge not lest you be judged, right? How, how often has that been abused? And there then is a, a culture of silence and passivity towards morality as we, as we misuse this principle in scripture. But, but God is calling us here to remind us that we are not all only Im, to be imitators. We are uh, I- imitating and we are imitated. I know it's a lot of uses of that word, but we are imitators and we are imitated constantly. We, we just don't recognize it sometimes that other people are imitating us. It's been most obvious to me in parenting. I, I, it's whether I like it or not, my children will imitate me. They'll, have, they'll roll their eyes at their mother because I roll my eyes at her, right? And whether I like it or not, they will do it. And that's the principle here that ignorance is no excuse when it comes to who is following after you and what they are, and what they are learning. So the challenge is, are you spiritually mature? And what are people picking up on in your life? Are they picking up on Christ or are they picking up on other bad habits that you have not rooted out of your life? There's a pretty specific set of ideals in scripture when it comes to the life of Christ, and we have the divinely given responsibility to nurture, guide, and shape each other by the gracious power of the Spirit to be united together towards spiritual maturity. It's an iron sharpening iron towards service to God, not a kind of drawing each other downward towards spiritual destruction Uh, the kind of spiritual destruction actually mentioned in the passage in verse 18, the next section. Uh, So the first point this morning from verse 17, standing firm together promotes spiritual maturity. Uh, This is the first way that standing firm together in Christ changes us, challenges us. 
God calls each one of us to be models of virtue and gospel-centered living and to partner with those as well who, who pursue the same ends. Uh, but not only this, but Paul also provides a warning, a very unique warning. In verses 18 and 19, he says this, standing firm together in Christ separates us from the world. Standing firm together in Christ separates us from the world. Verses 18 and 19 teaches us this. Uh, it isn't always popular. Uh, I struggled with using the term separation. It's not always popular to talk about that. Um, but Paul has a very particular admonition in mind that's very timely and important to the believing community. Uh, one with direct implications for the assembly of believers in particular. Uh, that is to say, Paul was unlikely addressing someone that was outside of the community or that didn't have a, a strong influence over the Philippian believers. So Paul is likely addressing false Christians in the community who were attempting to draw away, either passively or actively, the Philippian believers, and there was confusion. Uh, because why would Paul be in tears? Uh, as the verse says, I, I've often told you, even with tears, why would Paul be in tears about people that didn't have, there wouldn't be real consequences for who they were leading astray, how they were doing it, the influence they could exert over the Philippians. Um, so the expression also, the enemies of Christ, uh, suggests that these were people who claimed the cross, who claimed to be believers. Uh, wolves, in sheep wolves in sheep's clothing, essentially, uh, they, no matter what they were trying to put forward and how they were trying to express themselves, they were actually enemies of the cross. Unbelieving outside of the assembly and in there. They weren't outside of the assembly, but they were believers who were attempting to draw the Philippians away. So with this in mind, how does Paul then separate, develop a, a kind of picture? How do we separate ourselves from these people? How do we uh, establish a distinction in a, between these false Christians and these true believers, the true citizenship that Paul will mention later on? Well, Paul gives us several important statements in verses 19, verse 19, that describes that describe these people for us. He says, their end is destruction. Well, Paul doesn't mince words when he says uh, their end is destruction. It's pretty strong language. Um, and he begins at the end, so to speak. He, he says that those who oppose the gospel will have destructive ends. So he's, it's kind of a twofold pointing. He points to their ultimate end. When they stand in opposition to Christ, they stand before Christ, they will be their destruction will be, they have stood against Christ and they will be punished for it. But not only that, there's a present, uh, a, a more troubling present reality to this destructive behavior in that it tears apart the assembly of the community here and now, presently. Uh, there is a present unraveling of their life, their relationships, personal peace, a destruction of the community of faith in Philippi, uh, and the gospel they claim to support. So those are really intense consequences. He also says their God is their belly. And that kind of a strange phrasing, right? But when referencing the belly, Paul is drawing on a, a Greek understanding that the, some of the deepest, innermost welling up of desire, emotion, wants came from this area. So the belly, right? So Paul is referencing that their ultimate point of concern, worship even, their God is their belly, their deity, is their bodily, individualistic desires. Uh, comforts found in possessions. Uh, some even think this reference is explicitly towards sexuality. Um, prestige. All these things hold sacred places in their heart. 
the direct contrast to a call for unity and joint fellowship in pursuing Christ in verse 17 immediately begins, there is a separation that begins to be drawn. Uh, these false Christians pursue individualistic desires that tear apart the community. They don't draw the community together. Their glory is their shame. Uh, quite, quite clearly, they take pride and joy and meaning from things that should embarrass them, that should make them red-faced, essentially. So the word for glory here also comes from our English word. It's the root for our English word doxology. Uh, so it's a solemn commitment, a deep sense of personal worth. But they don't find it in Christ. They don't find it in God and spiritual vitality. They find it in their shameful living, their desires, and then earthly things. Uh, these aren't the practical affairs of everyday life. When Paul references this, their mind is set on earthly things. He says in verse 19, he's not talking about the normal things that characterize life, going shopping, having good relationships, enjoying a football game like tonight. He's not talking about those things. What he's talking about are these things. It's a list from Colossians chapter three. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language. Those are things that characterize a worldly life in opposition to God. And fascinatingly, that list, only impurity and evil desires of that list are not specifically social sins. So this worldly life undermines the unity of the community. It would be a destroying acid on the unity of the church. And if this behavior gained ground in Philippi, if this behavior gains ground in our assembly, you can understand why Paul feels so strongly about this admonition, speaks in such strong language about these kinds of people. Nothing corrodes the character and unity of a community like the presence of sin. And that's even a common theme in the Old Testament, the individual sin corrupting the community. And it's true here as well. So, what is your God? What are your objects of worship? What is your gospel? The pursuit of personal and largely fleeting comforts, I know in, in my life, they often displace the passionate pursuit of Christ, sadly. I'm easily distracted. I'm easily drawn away, sadly. And quite often our needs, if we're honest with ourselves, come before the needs of Christ. Our personal comforts, whether it's uh, wishes, ambitions, hopes, how and where we live, what we spend to satisfy on our comforts, on our own personal comfort, our hobbies, they all can displace the cross because of how they're oriented. Again, not the things themselves, but how they are oriented, their, their ultimate ends. It's imperative that we seek to recognize and reverse this trend that often occurs in our lives. So has the God of heaven, Jesus Christ, been dethroned by the God of our personal appetites? Beware of any pleasure or distraction that impedes the passionate pursuit of Christ and by direct result undermines the community and unity, the standing together of this community. Because it's not just us. We like to think that our sin only affects us. But sadly, that's just not the case. It doesn't. It affects a lot of people and often way more than we ever would anticipate or want it to. But that's the reality of sin. That's an, that is a reality of it. 
the comforts we worship become the gospel we preach. Only Christ unites us to stand firm together to the end. Standing firm together first promotes spiritual maturity, but it also separates us from the the world. Our individualistic desires and passions can often draw us away from the gospel and will over time erode the unity of the church. We will be drawn away ourselves and we will draw others away, imitators and imitated. Yet there is a guarantee that Paul affords in the next verses that serves as both a guard and a confirmation of our unity in Christ. A third way, standing firm together affects our entire life, our entire community, and that is this, our third point. Standing firm in Christ substantiates our heavenly citizenship. Standing firm in Christ substantiates our heavenly citizenship. We see this in verses 20 and 21. When Paul moves through this passage this morning, starting in verse 17 and, and down through verses 20 and 21, he begins with a sorrowful, uh, condom- he begins with discipleship, sorrowful condemnation, and then earthly citizenship. He's drawing out in brief uh, the, necessity, the necessity and precedent of the unity of the local church. In verse 20, 20 Paul makes a declarative statement uh, followed by an explanation of the grounds for that declarative statement. So he doesn't say, you might be citizens, or you will be, or you should be. He says, you are. It's a declarative statement. God's children will persevere until the return of Christ and the consummation of his kingdom, which directly affects our life right now. It's not something that will only affect us in the future. It has direct implications now. God has promised that once he has saved a sinner, he continues to keep and preserve them. By his power and his grace, he will never let them go. He will never let you go. As his child, he will never let you go. John 10, 29, no Christian can be plucked from God's hand. And if God did not do this, what's at stake? We would inevitably turn back into the world because of the sin that's in us and around us. And it's this connection that serves as a guard and a confirmation of our unity and of, with each other and ultimately with Christ. This is how Paul establishes the contrast. This is what, this is what those people that, ser- that their mind is on earthly things. This is what characterizes their life. But you are heavenly citizens. And he draws two important components. So just as he gives those, that description in verses 17 and eight, in verse 18 and 19, in verses 20, In 21, he gives a further description of the heavenly citizenship. Our heavenly citizenship first draws our hearts to our true Lord and Savior, Jesus. Our heavenly citizenship draws our hearts to our true Lord and Savior, Jesus. So citizenship, this notion in verse 20, appears only here in this form in the New Testament, but there's a very similar usage of the word in Philippians 1.27 when Paul says, conduct yourselves uses this phrase. And it's, uh, this, this word contains strong political overtones, especially, especially powerful to the Philippians. Because remember, Philippi was a Roman colony with uh, special rights of trade and protection. It was prestigious. Likely they drew a lot of communal pride from being a Roman colony. There was uh, certainly a this notion would have been present in the Philippian church and been a powerful example and a powerful real world example for the Philippians to connect with when identifying their citizenship, not simply here, but in heaven. 
uh, in a Roman colony, Roman law rather than native or local custom ruled the citizens. And so Paul plays on the sense of civic pride to draw out a beautiful picture of where our hearts should be drawn. A commonwealth located not here on earth, but in heaven. And when Paul uses this word savior, uh, many false deities in Philippi often were referenced as saviors, even the emperor. There was emperor worship. So the emperor was a, a deity. He was a savior. Uh, but this language, that, this title that he uses here is, is a reference back to Philippians 2. When he talks about the name that is above every name as well, it, it's a reference to the Old Testament language for God. And it provides a stark contrast to the paganism present in this day and our pursuit of Christ as our Lord and Savior. So the shameful acts, God is your belly, in contrast with the heavenly citizenship here in verses 20 and 21. And in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, this is what Paul says about this, this one Lord and Savior. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. We only have one savior. We often like to think that there are other things that might save us or provide uh, life to us, meaning it's not economic or social status, it's not accomplishments, it's not nationality, it's not where we live or when we live, it's not our personal abilities. It's the citizenship granted to us graciously by Christ's work on our behalf through our one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So where is your citizenship? begs the question, are you a citizen of heaven? Have you recognized your need for the gospel? Your need to identify with the life, death, and resurrection of Christ? You know, the Philippians struggled against the imperial prestige of being a Roman colony, and I dare say even we today struggle against the same, some of the same comforts of an American democracy. Uh, we often praise the rule of law under the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, uh, but do we take as much pride in God's divinely given law in scripture and our declared Christian responsibilities? Uh, it's, a, <laughs> it's a personal irritation of mine, this, Christ, this notion of rights. Um, it, I'm convinced that it's not necessarily a Christian notion. Uh, we have Christian responsibility. We don't have rights. Uh, we must be very, very careful when we claim rights under God's righteous justice, so let's explain this, uh, we don't have any rights. We, we deserve one thing, and that's eternity in hell. So we are slaves bought with a price, so we don't have any rights. We as the bride of Christ have responsibilities. And I know there could be some distinctions and some nuances, but appreciate the notion that we cannot claim something that we did not earn. It was given to us freely. So we have responsibilities then as slaves of Christ, to pursue him and him only. Responsibilities to God, the community of faith, and to God's created order. Also, where do you gain your sense of meaning? Vocation, security? Is it in some relationship? Maybe it's your marriage, your children, uh, your relationship to your job. I guess relatedness maybe is a better way to put that. Is it your relatedness to your money or your lack thereof? Where do you gain your sense of hope? Where do you feel a sense of pride welling up? Recognize that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven now, operating under divine law. We are aliens, not in the science fiction sense, but we are aliens here. First Peter 
describes the church as transient strangers, resident aliens. These are terms that describe foreigners temporarily dislocated from their homeland or landless people from another country. Does that describe you? Your sentiments, the way you feel about this current existence? Or maybe, like me, you know, maybe you're slightly disappointed with the prospect of leaving what you have right now. Because, you know, I, I have a very beautiful wife. I have wonderful kids. And, I, you know, I, I have a good life. God has been good to me. Uh, I mean, what, what am I going to do in heaven? I mean, it's eternity. That's a long time, right? Don't misunderstand that possibly the joys you feel now, the, the happiness, it's a, it's a grace of God that it's a, a, a tiny taste of what heaven will be. Don't misunderstand the joys you feel now. They're not inherently enclosed with this life that we live now. They are a, a gracious gift of God that whets our appetite for heaven to come. The joys you feel now are, will be nothing, nothing compared to when Christ returns and takes us back, takes us to himself, the perfect fellowship we'll have with him. So this citizenship we have unites our hearts. It draws our hearts to our one Lord and Savior, Jesus. And it prepares our hearts, minds, and bodies now for heaven to come. And this brings us to the second important component of our heavenly citizenship that Paul mentions here. In verse 21, he points out that our heavenly citizenship promises a complete resurrection. A complete resurrection. Greek culture considered the idea of a bodily resurrection vulgar, and maybe that just seems strange to you. And probably in a modern context, that would seem strange to a lot of people. You know, what do we do with uh, people who have been lost at sea or if <laughs> cannibalism, a, a paper at, uh, at Southeastern, someone presented a paper on cannibalism. What do, how, you do, how do you bring somebody's body back together that's been scattered? And uh, yes, I'm sure in our modern, modern minds, there's this notion of how can we be bodily raised? What, what kind of sense does that make? So there is, there is power to what Paul is saying here, that we will experience a complete resurrection. There will be a full resurrection of our body and our soul. And a citizen of the heavenly realm Paul unpacks the deep riches of this status. So this fallen earthly realm isn't the sum total of our existence. Uh, rather, there's been a transfer of residence that will be simply finalized, actualized in the last day with, the, with our bodies being resurrected or changed uh, if Christ returns before we die. Here on earth, uh, total, and se- total security and lasting peace cannot be reached until the day Christ Jesus returns. Uh, the way in which Paul describes Christ coming in verse 21 is a reminder to the Philippians and a reminder to us that this, this current state isn't the end. Our, our bodies haven't, we haven't arrived at our ultimate goal, which is what we talked about last week. We haven't arrived yet. We're not at the end. We cannot be satisfied with half measures, fleeting pleasures, but seek the full satisfaction found in Christ alone. And fully apprehending Christ's resurrection power and fully attaining that lies in the future, sadly. We long for it. We must anxiously wait for it, patiently, eagerly, the full conformity of our entire being to Christ. The community of saints, the church, must join together in this anticipation. And in many ways, that's what we do this morning as we participate in communion. 
Our heavenly citizenship promises a complete resurrection, a restoration of God's original intent. Not in the sense of going back to Eden, where we were garden and tend, which wouldn't be half bad. I don't mind that. But that's not really what it's referring to. There's a, a restoration of things as God intended them to be. And even verse 21 echoes the description of Christ's humiliation and exaltation in, in chapter 2. Christ humbled himself, became obedient to death on the cross. He was exalted. Thus, on the final day, he will, from his exalted position, return. And where, where he, things are already subject to him, he will draw us to him and he will resurrect our bodies. Christ identified with our humility so that we might in turn be identified with his resurrected body. So is Christ your life, your source of joy, contentment, satisfaction, peace, however you want to package it, whatever words you use for what makes you feel safe. Is, is that what you anticipate, you hope for? Is Christ the Lord of your passions and your hopes as well as your mind or your current desires? Are you dependent on your heavenly citizenship? And Paul writes in this quite possibly my favorite, one of my favorite passages of scripture. In, in Colossians chapter three, he writes about this dependence of our existence in beautiful language. He says this in the first four verses of Colossians three. Since then you have been raised with Christ, present reality, set your hearts on things above. So there are desires that must be set on him. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above not on earthly things. Why? For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. We are that deeply dependent on Christ. His resurrection revives us. It brings us life. So what's the proper response? Setting our hearts, desires, our innermost seat of being on him alone, our minds on things of heaven, not on things of the earth. Knowing him through dependence, faithfulness, prayer, community. In many ways, the entire sermon has revolved around the last verse in the passage today, Philippians 4 verse 1. Therefore, Paul begins this verse, therefore, because of all I have just mentioned, Stand firm in the Lord in this way is how he ends the verse. And chapter four, verse one is packed with affection. Brothers and sisters, that's a familial description. That's what you say to your family, your sincerest, closest family members. A love and a longing, that's intimacy. That's desire. That's what you say to, again, a spouse or a child, someone you deeply love. Joy and crown, that's a value statement. What is it? Uh, that's what you say to your source of hope, love, and peace. You say that to someone or something that's fundamentally important to you today and tomorrow and ongoing. So God's message to us is this. The way we live, our walk, our appetites, the things which we revel in, our inner disposition, must be focused on Christ alone. Who do you stand with? I want to stand with each one of you. 
but only Christ can accomplish this in us. Standing firm together in Christ, what does it do? It promotes spiritual maturity first, it separates us from the world, and it substantiates our heavenly citizenship because this citizenship draws us together, our hearts together toward our one Lord and Savior, Jesus, and promises us a complete resurrection. Only Christ unites us to stand firm together to the end. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word that is true, is reliable, and it is effective in teaching us, shaping us, and changing us by your Spirit's power. I pray that your word would sink in to each individual heart and mind and to us as a body of believers. May we be united together in Christ. And I pray if there is someone here who does not know Christ as Lord and Savior, doesn't know the union with Christ that comes first before the corporate joining together of believers in, in a church community, I pray that your spirit would convict, your spirit would call, and they would seek someone out who knows, who can share with them the glories of the gospel and that your spirit would revive life in them. Thank you that we are dependent on you, that we don't have to rely on our abilities, our skills, um, our talents, but that we can stand together in Christ. You are what unites us. It's not our personalities. It's not anything else but Christ. We are so thankful for all you've done for us and you continue to do in us. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.